This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I'm thrilled to have back with me Mike DeBernardis. Mike is a partner at Hughes Hubbard, and Mike and I get together after the end of each quarter to take a look back at some of the key enforcement actions, issues, uh, pronouncements, and other matters that have come to fore over the past quarter. We take a look at the YPP, um, FCPA enforcement action, and a little bit on Credit Suisse, the monitorship issue raised by John Carlin, pronouncements from the SEC, the National Security Directive, and the Pandora Papers. I know you'll enjoy this episode. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and today I have with me back again Mike DeBernardis, a partner at Hughes Hubbard and fan favorite for our quarterly wrap-up, where we take a look back at the last quarter. Mike, uh, as we did in the first two quarters of 2021, it may appear things were not, not a lot was happening, but it turns out when we pull the covers back, there was a heck of a lot happening. Uh, we had a couple of uh, FCPA cases, uh, one of which uh, was WPP. Uh, Credit Suisse just came down in early Q4, so we're going to talk about those as well. Both had some pretty detailed fact patterns that have been explored on lots of other pods and blogs. So what I really wanted to, to ask you about both of these cases is they seem to me to have lots of lessons learned uh, for both the white collar defense professional, the corporate compliance program, and the compliance professional. So maybe if I could start off by asking you, what did you think some of the key lessons or, or more appropriately, what are you and your Hughes Hubbard's colleagues uh, talking to your client base about in the context of both of these enforcement actions? Yeah, uh, and I, I guess let me first say I'm I'm, I'm happy to uh, finally be on here and able to to talk about some some meat, some 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 actual FCPA action. Um, uh, so I agree with you completely. I think there's some some really interesting lessons coming from both of these cases, um, and, and and at the same time they're very different. Uh, for, you know, for for WPP. Um, We've been using this really as an example for our clients of the risks around M and A, uh, because you know in, in this in this case you had a situation where um, WPP was was expanding aggressively in international markets and acquiring uh, many smaller uh, firms, and then really leaving those firms to operate as they had been before, just under the WPP umbrella. One of the things we often tell our clients is, you know, you, you obviously, when you're when you're doing a, an acquisition, some acquisition activity, you want to you want to be careful about what that company has done in the past, so that you're not sort of purchasing uh, um, an FCPA issue. But uh, one of the bigger things is is that moment that the deal closes, they're now working for you. They they are part of your company, and so any any misconduct from that moment forward is on you. Uh, and it seems that that was a, a message that was maybe lost on WPP, and they failed to put in place uh, um, controls to to deal with the the increasing risk that they were that they were getting themselves involved in. Uh, the other the other thing that sort of stood out to me about about WPP, and it's a good example of, you know, historically when I first started doing this, um, oil and gas companies were were concerned about the FCPA, maybe some defense contractors. Um, but the broader other industries maybe thought that this was a problem that they didn't have to think about. 
Uh, and I think over the, the last few years, we've really seen that there, there's no, no industry that's immune from, uh, from FCPA enforcement. WPP is an you know, advertising firm. We've seen retail. We've seen software. You know, Microsoft uh, had issues. We've seen beverage companies. There really is not an industry uh, that, that is going to be immune from, from FCPA issues. If you were out there operating in the, in the international space, uh, you are exposed. Credit Suisse is a much different case, uh, and and the the I think the lessons are a little more nuanced there. Um, I I think it confirms a lot of what we've been telling clients for the last several years: increased international cooperation. Right, the, the, these, especially these bigger cases, uh, they're almost always going to involve multiple agencies from from multiple countries, and Credit Suisse involved the the U.S. obviously, uh, the U.K. and, and Swiss authorities. It's a, it's, a, it's a good example of, I, I think, what's a growing trend of, um, I, I like to call it mixed misconduct, right? So you had, we had FCPA uh, issues that were resolved, we had fraud issues that were resolved, and we're sort of seeing this, especially for the more complex cases, uh, come up more, and it really shows um, a, a increased uh, cooperation internally within the, the agencies here in the U.S., and working across different units to, to make sure you're capturing all the misconduct involved. And then, um, th you know, I think anytime I see uh, where a company does not receive full cooperation credit, uh, I, I, a sort of an alarm goes off for me because it, it, there's an there's opportunity to, to learn what matters to the DOJ. Uh, and so, Credit Suisse, I think, received 15% off of the, the bottom of the U.S. sentencing guidelines, where they were eligible for 25%. And you know, at least at least in the uh, press release, the statement was that that that, that 10% uh, was due to you know some some delayed responses in places. Uh, but I always I'm always alert to those situations because you can really learn a lot when you see what the DOJ is giving co cooperation credit for and what they're withholding credit about. So, Mike, let me follow up on a couple of points from both cases, and let me just start directly with Credit Suisse because I really like your uh, thoughts on the on the mixed misconduct, and and maybe I want to take it a little bit different direction because uh, there seem to me to be two major types of red flags from really two separate but related transactions. The first one was the original tuna bond deal. And clearly there were red flags around the individuals being utilized as third-party intermediaries and the payment schemes. But the thing that uh, perhaps interested me even more was the second deal, which was when it became clear that the original bond offering was not going to be repaid. They repackaged those and made them uh, essentially sovereign debt of Mozambique. And then they sold that to investors in, in a huge fraud, which I think more directly impacted Credit Suisse. And I wanted to focus on the second transaction because one of the things I've been trying to communicate is the deal itself can be a red flag. And perhaps the best example um, is Goldman Sachs on the Malaysian case where uh, they were getting $300 million for floating uh, a $6 billion bond far above market. And here we had essentially uh, payment terms far above market, and Credit Suisse was the one that was repaid 
on the backs of the bond investors. Do you ever really counsel people to, to look at the overall transaction? I don't want to use the phrase, if it's too good to be true, it, you know, it's not true. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that looking at actually the, the, the entirety of the transaction could lead to at least asking some questions. Is that something you guys counsel uh, your clients on? Yeah, for sure. And uh, the the comparison, I think, to, to Goldman Sachs and the one MDB case is a good one. I, when I when I first read this uh, about the Credit Suisse case, my initial thought was this is this is sort of a, a mini version of, of the one MDB uh, issue in some ways. But um, y- your point is is really well taken. I think it applies broadly because what we what we often counsel clients on when they're doing due diligence, whether it's on a deal whether it's on a, you know, a, a potential contract with a customer, whether it's on a, a contract with a third party, is first look at it from a business standpoint. Is there, is there a business justification for it? Do the terms make sense from a business standpoint? Um, things like you mentioned, are the terms too favorable, to really too good to be true? Um, all of those things are a signal that maybe you need to look a little deeper into what what is going on here. So I think it's, it's absolutely right. This is a, this is, perhaps a really obvious example of it and, and to the extreme, but it really applies sort of down the chain uh, to transactions that are occurring, uh, you know, every day. So now let me turn to WPP and another thing that uh, really intrigued me about that case, and it's what I'm going to call perverse in compliance, excuse me, perverse compensation incentives. And this is, uh, at least the way I define it, where compensation scheme or plan that uh, you and I would look at and say, routine, we've certainly seen this before, it's incorporated into a lot of different comp programs, really becomes perverse. And, and you know, the best example there is Wells Fargo uh, with their uh, sales program. But here we had um, the entities that were purchased, the owners who were acquired by WPP had earnout provisions. And that's one of the most ubiquitous provisions in any M&A deal. You want the owners, you want the key employees to stick around to help with the transition, but also to help make sure that the, the subsidiary is, is profitable. Um, how do you help a client really think through or watch or put an internal control in place to prevent what you and I would consider an appropriate compensation incentive from becoming perverse? We're going to have a quick word and then we'll be right back with more from Mike DeBernardis. Yeah, I, I guess first I think we might need to get a trademark lawyer on here and start trademarking some of these uh, some of these terms we're coming up with here. But uh, I, I think um, you know it, the there's a middle ground here. So I think WPP part part of part of why it's it's so interesting is it, is it seems very extreme. Not only did you have these pervert as you as you turn them perverse compensation uh, agreements or incentives. Um, but then you had absolutely no control on top of it, right? You, you are, you're right. The, the, the type, in general, the type of incentive that was set up uh, where you, where you want to keep these executives on board for, you know, for a transition period to really keep the business moving are very common. Uh, and I think if, if you had packaged what they had, what WP had, PP had done from a business standpoint, 
with actual compliance controls on top. So, so monitoring what they were doing, uh, making sure that, that when they're using third parties, they were going through due diligence, uh, all of those types of things. It, it might have been fine, but what, what you had was these very aggressive compensation incentives so that, so that these executives really had an incentive to boom the business as much as they could. And you had really no control over um, what they were doing, no, no, no really ability to monitor what they were doing. I mean, they were in a lot of these places, the, the entities that were being acquired were basically acquired and then left to, to, to do businesses as they wished uh, with very little supervision. So I think there's a way to marry those two things. And uh, when we're talking to clients about incentives, whether maybe it's sales incentives for, for business development folks around the world or uh, or incentives for third parties that you're engaging. There's always a combination of the, of, of the two, right? It's, it's always a sliding scale. You can have aggressive incentives because you, you want to motivate your people to do the work, but the more aggressive you go, sort of the stricter the controls you need to have in place to monitor what they're doing and make sure they're not doing anything inappropriate to, to sort of achieve their, their goal. So let me um, turn to another area that I would like to, to maybe highlight around WPP, and that was broadly uh, the whistleblower, the whistleblower reporting, the original investigation, and then the final investigation. And, and in India, we had a whistleblower who was very diligent. He had seven separate whistleblowing reports, and um, the um, there was an original investigation by apparently a non-investigative accounting firm which was very limited in scope. And what I'd like your thoughts on, Mike, are um, why when you have a, I had a friend that said, when you have a serious problem, you have to have a serious good law firm investigating it. And you've done lots of investigations and Hughes Hubbard has done lots of investigations. And I think part of the reason your success is your credibility with the regulators. But I'd like to focus more on the investigation. And why is it critical if something uh, comes in, it gets properly triaged and reported up that you bring in a seriously good investigative firm who knows the basic questions to ask, and more importantly, knows the follow-up questions. Could you maybe focus on why the need for a top-notch investigative firm uh, is called for when you have something like this? Yeah, this is a really, this is a really good example of it. I think this is a this is a, a good case study for for the need uh, for this. So you know. It, I think there is a, there's sometimes a perception, um, and, and some of our clients have it initially, that anybody can do an investigation. I know we can do this ourselves. We have, we'll send the, you know, the manager from, from uh, uh, China out to, to, to investigate, or we'll send you know, whoever it is. We'll send our internal auditor out to do the investigation. Um, the, the reality is, uh, I think a good investigation involves, obviously, the ability to, to uh, get to the, the facts at issue, but it's also the ability to understand what facts are going to be relevant, to understand the legal implication of certain facts as you're learning them, to know where to follow up and, and where to not follow up. Uh, and then you're right, there is, uh, there is a, a degree of, of credibility that, that firms have with the regulators that, that is useful, but there's also... Um, the, the, the experience and the diligence that, that good investigative teams use uh, ensures that 
you're you're not stuck in some in a place like WPP or some other some other examples of this as well, where uh, you know the first investigation doesn't get to the the crux of the matter, and and now you're doing a follow up, and now things maybe have compounded and have gotten worse, or you know in a, in a worst case scenario, you you make your presentation to the regulator and say, hey, here's all the facts, uh, and then you find out you know months later that you missed key facts and and the investigator you know the investigators you know, didn't speak to the right people or miss key documents or, or miss key issues. And, uh, you're left sort of, um, going back to the, to the regulator to, to sort of explain that mistake. Uh, so it, it really is, it really is critical. And there's, there's skill involved there. I think that sometimes people who are less experienced with, with having to investigate things don't appreciate. Turn to another area that uh, we've, we had some very interesting comments, and that came from a DOJ, uh, I think an assistant uh, attorney general, uh, John Carlin. And the thing that intrigued me about his remarks, uh, I don't want to say it was a standard, but we're going to aggressively uh, investigate, we're going to take people to trial. But at the end, he said, we're going to take a very hard look at whether companies are fulfilling their obligations they agree to under a, a DPA and NPA uh, or any other type of agreement. And that struck me as uh, perhaps there might be uh, a change in philosophy at this Department of Justice around the use of monitors. Obviously, the Benchikowski memo was an expression of the prior administration's thoughts around monitors, and, and many of us followed that. But the WPP case seemed to me to be based upon what we know from the public record in terms of uh, the cooperation and the problems WPP had, uh, not even having a compliance function up to 2017, that this was a case that would have would have been appropriate for a monitor to be appointed to make sure WPP agree, uh, followed their agreements. We've also had a recent announcement by the DOJ they may be revisiting a currently current DPA in place, and so uh, it seemed to me WPP might be a transition case because I suspect. Most of the settlement was done under the prior administration and certainly before the new leadership team came into place. Really, any thoughts on Carlin's remarks and that part of WPP and, and that the Department of Justice may be more closely scrutinizing companies after uh, the settlements are signed? Uh, it's, for when, when, when uh, you know, Carlin gave his, his speech, I think... Uh, across the industry, the, the part of it that got the most attention was this um, this comment that there's going to be a surge of resources for to, towards corporate enforcement, and the FBI unit is going to be embedded in the fraud section. But um, similar to you, I, I actually found this last sort of comment towards the end of the speech about um, the, the way that they're going to monitor and and really scrutinize DPAs and MPAs to be really interesting. It was it was a uh, to me at least listening to the speech, reading the speech. It, it struck me as uh, very purposeful. Um, you know, it wasn't just, you know, you can say the surge in resources and we're going to uh, enforce aggressively as you would expect that in any speech. Um, there seemed to be a message, a clear message being sent with that comment. Um, I, one of the more remarkable things in the last two years to me is the lack of monitorships. I, I think we're running, we're, we're about two years, it's been about two years almost since the last time a monitor was imposed in, a, in an FCPA case, which is really just, uh, considering wh where the trends were and where we are now, really really pretty remarkable. Um, 
I, when, when, when the Biden administration came in, it was one of the things that we pointed to, to, to as a potential change in approach because um, they, they had really been used and been used successfully in the past to, to monitor companies. And I do think that these comments by, by Carlin um, are a signal that, that, that that's in play. So whether, whether WPP is, is, a, is a transition case and whether the, the very next one will involve a monitor, uh, I, I don't know. But I do expect as, as this administration continues into 2022 and beyond, um, monitorships will again become a more commonly used tool. And aside from that, um, I think that, that you know, there's the, the monitor really is fo- often focused specifically on their compliance program of the company and making sure they're, they're meeting those obligations. I, I, I think the comments by John Carlin suggest that the DOJ is also going to look very closely to make sure that any cooperation obligations the company have are, are carefully followed. And that might mean, you know, are you providing information on the employees as you, as you uh, promised you would? Um, and and they're, they're serious about uh, potentially pulling a DPA or an MPA if, if the company balks. So let me turn now, Mike, to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, they've had some very interesting uh, remarks from uh, Chairman Gensler on down, but we had uh, one series of remarks by the Director of Enforcement around uh, increased enforcement and most interestingly or, or differently perhaps admissions of liability in settled settlement documents. If we accept that the SEC and D- DOJ always telegraph the moves they're going to make in advance, do you really see the admissions of liability in settlement documents as something that, that could become a real thing? Uh, we've heard this before. Uh, so I, I'm, not, I'm not discounting that, that, that this is going to happen. Uh, but there, have, there has been noise around this issue in the past. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of um, industry groups that think that these no admit, no deny uh, uh, settlements um, are letting the companies off too easily, and that uh, you know the SEC should insist on an admission. Um, I, I think it's you know be careful what you ask for type situation for the SEC here. I, there, there is, you know, um, I personally believe, uh, in, in in dealing with clients in these situations that. Um, the, the requirement to admit certain allegations, um, would, will lead companies and individuals both to, to be more likely to fight. Um, whereas, so, you know, I think if, if, and maybe that's exactly what the, you know, enforcement division is going for, uh, you know, we should stop letting companies off easily. And if, if, if we really think that they, uh, have, have committed certain conduct, we either, they either have to admit it or we have to prove it. Um, but I, I do think that could be an end result if they take this path. I think um, the, the no admit, no deny is an important piece for SEC settlements in particular. I, I, I just think that, that there, is, there are a lot of collateral consequences that come from admitting certain misconduct uh, and that the, the uh, consequences are such that companies will be willing to, uh, you know, to fight allegations uh, as, as much as they needed to avoid that admission. Like one of the things that's interested me, I just did a series looking back on uh, the Delaware Supreme Court and Caremark and their really expansion of, of Caremark duties in uh, shareholder derivative actions. And it struck me uh, in reading uh, uh, the remarks about 
potential admissions and liability, that that could be a very powerful tool in civil shareholder litigation in state courts, typically Delaware, perhaps other courts as well, and that uh, it could lead to, um, could sort of roll in on itself and lead to further expansion of Caremark if you have companies admitting defects in the forms of admissions in uh, SEC orders as well, increasing the cost in a wide variety of related uh, litigation. Exactly. I I think that's... um that's one piece of exactly what I'm what I'm getting at the the the, the add-on effect to admission. It's 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 not as simple as you know oh we don't want to admit that we did this because it looks bad. It's there's uh, there's legal liability consequences. I think that that flow from that that are really serious for a company. Um, and so you know I think frankly a, a lot of SEC uh, settled enforcement actions um, result from. Uh, really result from this ability to, to do a no admit, no deny and, and pay your fine and take your lump and, and sort of move on and have that be the end of it. If, if you're going to, if, if the, if instead the consequences are going to be years of potential liability, whether it's, you know, derivative, you know, securities, there could be potential, you know, criminal liability, who knows? Um, it, it really changes the calculus in, in doing that settlement. So this is our third uh, podcast of this year since it's we just finished Q3. But in each podcast, I've been able to say one of the most ubiquitous phrases in the corporate world in 2021 has been ESG, and that continued in, in Q3. Um, the SEC has, has talked about climate disclosures. They've talked about ESG disclosures. Are we any, any closer, I guess I should say, are you and your colleagues any closer to being able to give some some advice you feel comfortable that the regulators are giving on what ESG disclosure should be other than just get it right? Yeah, it's, it is, it is uh, I think, constantly evolving at this point. And you're absolutely right. I think we've, we've talked about this maybe on each, each podcast so far this year. It continues to be um, one of the top two or three items that we, we, we receive questions about. Um, right now, uh, I think the, the, the best advice we have is um, make sure you're getting it right, right? Make sure it's accurate. Because right now, the focus uh, of the SEC, at least at least on the, the few cases that they've, that they've taken so far, have been on uh, inaccurate uh, descriptions of, of ESG activities, um, misrepresentations regarding, you know, certain, certain activities. And uh, I think all of that's with the understanding that the investing public is more and more interested in this and is putting more and more weight into what companies are doing in this space. And when, when you have sort of that materiality involved, it, it, it increases the, the burden on the companies to make sure they're being really accurate with, with how they're describing this stuff. And so that's right now, that's, that's the best advice we can give. And we're continuing to monitor really what the SEC is doing and, and the types of cases it's bringing to see if there's, uh, you know, other issues and other compliance aspects that the companies need to be concerned with. So this next question was meant to deal with uh, Q3 SEC issues around crypto and SPACs, but we had two events this week that I thought really crystallized where we might be on both of those issues. And on the SPAC, we had WeWork go public via a SPAC. And Lots of howls uh, by people about um, WeWork's culture, obviously, 
uh, the last time they tried to go public and were the uh, the new management team, has it really been able to turn it around? And more importantly, have they put the appropriate SOX 404 controls in place? <clears throat> and then the SECs, um, I'm not sure how you would characterize their relationship with crypto and cryptocurrency, but we had a, a coder company this week who has delivered subpoenas turn around and sue the SEC. Uh, strikes me as one of the ways to piss the SEC off is to sue them over subpoenas. Nevertheless, uh, this coder felt the, the need to do so. Uh, are, do we have any further clarity on those issues that you have seen, or how are you helping uh, any of your clients work through those issues from the SEC perspective? So, uh, you know, the, those, those are very different things, but in, in, in some ways, I think they are um, they're similar in that it, it's a place where I think the, the SEC and, and regulators more broadly recognize there's a there's a problem. Uh, they just haven't quite figured out how to fix it. You know, everybody across the board is talking about crypto, whether it's the DOJ, the, the SEC. I mean, the, the OFAC is talking about crypto in, in the, the sanction space. But how do we how do we regulate it? How do we control it? And, and what are we exactly enforcing? And so in the SEC's perspective, it's been most often enforcing it in connection with offerings, you know, at, at the the make sure there's no fraud in, in crypto offerings and, and that type of thing. For the DOJ, I think they're looking at it from more of a, a money laundering standpoint. With SPACs, it's the same thing. I think there's a recognition that uh, this is a bit like the Wild West here. How do we, uh, from, from the Division of Enforcement, what, what are we doing? How are we enforcing it? Uh, in, in, in similar ways to ESG, I think what they're, what they're left with right now is uh, disclosures and you know making sure that the registration statements are accurate because these these SPACs it's happening really fast. There's a huge amount of activity, uh, and I think that there is uh, perhaps uh, in some cases a little less care given to the disclosures made about the target company and its activities and and, uh, and that sort of thing than that might happen in a traditional IPO. Uh, and so really focusing on those issues to um, one to make sure that. The investing public is receiving accurate information before they're they're putting their money in, uh, and two, I, I think that the effort is to sort of maybe try to slow it down just a bit uh, to make sure everything happens with a little bit more care. Um, I, I I think both of these areas are continuing to evolve, and we haven't quite landed where we ultimately will with with in terms of the regulation and the enforcement. Uh, and I probably will will we probably won't land there until. Uh, some type of regulation is, is passed specific, you know, specifically related to these these items, uh, and the DOJ and the SEC can step in and, and enforce that law. Um, so right now they're, they're using the tools they have uh, to try to to try to regulate it as best as possible. We had two releases of major papers uh, through journalist uh, outlets. Um, one was Facebook, but I'm going to leave that one to maybe our Q4 wrap-up because I want to see a little bit more how that plays out. But we had the Pandora Papers, and these followed on from the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers. And uh, most of the discussion in the media was around, oh, politicians or foreign government officials who were using trust or other vehicles to uh, make money opaque. Uh, whether it was for nefarious reasons or whether it was for legitimate uh, tax avoidance reasons. Nevertheless, uh, what I wanted to do, Mike, is see if um, 
you thought the release of that papers in terms of its timing might really influence what the Department of Treasury, FinCEN, or others are doing in writing the regs around uh, to, to enforce the AML law of 2020? And does this really heighten the need for uh, increased transparency <clears throat> uh, from the regulatory perspective? It does. It does heighten the need for sure. Um, I, I, I'm not convinced that this is, well, I, I'm certain that this is a problem without an easy solution. Um, one of the, I think, for the general public, one of the, the more surprising aspects of the Pandora Papers uh, was how it exposed that, you know, this is not necessarily all offshore uh, activity, right? You know, I think that we have in our mind the Cayman Islands and some of these other places that are uh, historically have been tax havens and had the secrecy. But, you know, I, you know, I think South Dakota has a growing number of, of um, you know, opaque, you know, the laws that allow some, some opaque ownership and, and, you know, less transparency. And, you know, this is something that was, that was pointed out. I don't know if you read the book uh, Moneyland by, by Oliver Below, but it, it really drove this point home. Um, the the solution is probably, honestly, because this is such a global and international problem, the, the, the solution that comes in with, with Treasury and others in, uh, I think, in, uh, changing the way that these funds can also ultimately be used. So in regulating, for instance, you know, we've, we've had some, some changes in, in how the art market is dealing with uh, you know, accepting funds from um, from these these accounts and these entities without knowing the ownership. You have you know same thing with antiquities or real estate, because if you limit what these officials or or wealthy individuals can do with the funds in uh, these these entities that have opaque ownership, um, you really can can limit their use, uh, and so. I think that's probably what end, will end up being the solution that, that has the most impact. Um, because in, until you have that, I think you're always going to find somewhere, uh, and that's, this is how it came up in, in Jersey and Cayman, that sees um, you know, the offering of corporate structures that allow for the, the, you know, hiding beneficial interests um, as, a, as a way to generate tax revenue for their, for their location. And so you know, if, assuming that some of those locations clean up their act and I shouldn't frame it that way, but change their laws. There's just going to be another location that, that steps into their place. So I think the solution really is going to come from how, how these funds are used. And that puts pressure, frankly, on, on our clients operating those spaces uh, to make sure they're, they're paying close attention to any new regulations that are passed regarding dealing with offshore entities or entities without knowing the ultimate beneficial owners. Mike, we have talked about the Biden administration national security directive, which came out, I believe, in April, which identified corruption as a national security interest. And President Biden directed multiple uh, U.S. government agencies to uh, find ways to uh, fill that directive and, and enjoin the fight against corruption simply beyond the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. That report is due out at some point in December. And what I really wanted to ask was, uh, since corruption has been identified, I've had several people ask me, will the U.S. move to, to more robustly enshrine the whistleblowing process that started uh, with um, 
largely with Dodd-Frank, which has been a huge success for the SEC, and move that uh, same program across multiple government agencies? Or is, or is that something you guys have, have thought about or are thinking about at Hughes Hubbard? I think that could ultimately be one of the things, certainly, that comes out of this. It, I think this is going to be a long process. So I, I don't expect the, the, you know, the, the results that, that we, you know, December, I think there's a report that's expected. Um, I don't expect that to have all the answers. Um, I, I think that a whistleblower, uh, a more embracing the whistleblower model uh, could, be, could be one thing that comes out of it. I think efforts by individual entities, I'm sorry, individual agencies within the U.S. Uh, in their own space to combat corruption could come out of this. So, you know, if you look at the defense sector, maybe some additional diligence before, you know, providing uh, military support or weapons to, to you know, foreign government. Uh, if you look at things like USAID, some additional anti-corruption resources there to make sure the projects that are being funded are not affected by corruption. I think that's, you know, that that's a, a likely um, uh, product. And then I, what I really think it's going to be felt, at least in the short term, is uh, a change of uh, perhaps a change of focus of enforcement. And so we saw this a little bit actually with with John John Carlin's um, comments, where he he said we're going to focus on in, uh, you know corruption, anti-corruption enforcement in uh, Latin America and particularly places that are that are. Um, the home to many of the you know immigrants that are crossing the U.S. border, and so sort of using the fight against corruption to tackle specific problems we have back home, I think, will be the most immediate uh, effect of of these studies and, and the interagency review. Uh, Mike, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time for this podcast, but I wanted to maybe turn to uh, the upcoming Hughes Hubbard FCPA alert. Uh, ask you. Uh, if you had an idea when we might expect it this year, uh, so what some of the highlights might be, or, or if you're participating in it, uh, what are you looking at? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for thanks for uh, for the plug. Uh, we, it, it's you know last year because of the pandemic, we sort of got off schedule. We had typically done a sort of autumn to autumn schedule with with release in early December. We're back on that this year, so you should expect um, you should expect the electronic version to be available. I think the first week of December. Uh, is, is what we're shooting for with the, the nicely bound um, hard copies uh, to, to come shortly after that. Um, you know, it, it hasn't been a, it, for, you know, our 2020 alert had, there was like 25 FCPA enforcement actions that we, we studied. It hasn't been that type of year, uh, but there's been a lot that's gone on uh, around the world. And so like usual, we've got, we're, you know, we've got a robust discussion of what happened in France and the, you know, what's going on in Brazil and China and other places where, um, there's, there is activity and, and we know from talking to clients and other companies that there's interest in learning more. Um, and, you know, I think, I guess one thing to look for is, um, we have each year we, we, uh, sort of use it as a theme, a quote from, from, a you know, whether it's a, a musician or, or an actor or someone who's passed away. Uh, and, and this year we're, we've, we've used a a quote from uh, Omar Little from The Wire, uh, you know, in, in in remembrance of Michael K. Williams, the actor. So be on the lookout for that. I won't I won't give any more uh, more information than that. But that'll be um, th- that it's it it works well. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, and, and it's it's really you know we, we have a big team that puts a lot of time and effort into it. So it's it's uh, 
it's it's shaping up to be another good um, a good resource this year. Well, we will look forward to it. It's always the first one of the season, so it's uh, incredibly well read and incredibly well written. I look forward to it. Uh, Mike, it's always a great pleasure to sit down and visit with you, and I look forward to our Q4 wrap-up. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Good to talk to you. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part podcast series where I interviewed Matt Silverman, and we took a deep dive into trade and export compliance. We premiered a couple of new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network in October. Karsten Tams and I take a look at design thinking and how this social engineering tool can be used by a compliance professional. And on a passion project, I'm doing the Hill Country Podcast. In our initial episode, I visit with Kathy Ragsdale, the matriarch of Camp Stewart for Boys, located just outside of Hunt, Texas. So check out these podcasts as long, along with the 70 other podcasts now appearing on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.